Hello and welcome to the Keeping the Peace podcast with me, Alexis Powell Howard. Today we're going to be talking to Assistant Chief Constable Paul Anderson and Assistant Chief Officer Nancy Shackleton from Humberside Police. Uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation. We're coming out the back of uh, COVID-19, uh, we're going, we're coming out of lockdown and we've just had quite a difficult few months, uh, which I know you've had to kind of step up and manage an awful lot of people uh, and an awful lot of the public as well around how they've been managing themselves. So. The, the topic of today's podcast is around change and how we manage change, how we help people to engage with change. Firstly, before I start, I'd like you to introduce yourselves and kind of tell people what Assistant Chief Constable and Assistant Chief Officer means, if we can start with that. So I'm going to come to you first, Paul, if that's okay. Yeah, what does that really mean in terms of your role and what is it you do at Humberside Police? I'm the Assistant Chief Constable for Local Policing, so I oversee all the elements of local policing within Humberside Police. So it's what it says on the tin, it's the, it's the visible aspect of policing. It's divisions, uh, response, neighbourhood policing, it does incorporate the, the CID side of things, but also under my portfolios I've got departments such as Community Safety and the Force Control Room. So you know, our first contact from someone picking up the phone and calling us and then from the officers, for the staff going out and then giving them that service. Brilliant, okay, thank you. And how, how long have you been at Humberside Police for? I've been here bar two weeks, almost exactly a year, so right. it's, it's nearly my one year anniversary, it's my <laughs> birthday coming up. <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Nancy, how about you? What about you? Yes, yeah, so I'm a civilian member of staff, I'm not a warranted police officer, uh, and there are five of us in the chief officer team, so there's Paul and other colleagues who do that. So um, what I'm responsible for is all the support departments, so I'm in charge of HR or people, finance and money, IT, estates and cars. Oh, not much. Not much. <laughs> so you don't upset her if you want anything, you've <laughs> yeah. got to keep Nancy on Nancy side. Nancy on side at all <laughs> times, if you want anything. <laughs> it's been said. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, thank you for that. So tell me about your experiences over the last few months. How have you, how have you felt things have gone um, in terms of managing that change? And if you come to you first, Paul. I mean, you touched right at the beginning about COVID. Uh, I mean, I've been a police officer for 29 years. This, this one's been a new one on me. Mm. I mean, we, we've looked in terms of pandemic flu to uh, prepare for such things for, for years. This is the first time it, it's become a reality. I have to say, I mean, personally, it's been it's new. It's been really, really challenging. But in terms of dealing with something that's different, it's that uncertainty. I felt that uncertainty personally, uh, and it has had a real operational focus. Uh, in some terms, that's really, really good because our staff have been wonderful. Mm. It's given them the ability to focus and really kind of, you know, there's kind of like a moral emphasis there because we're doing it to save people's lives. However, and there is a however, everybody, each and every one of us has, to, has had to significantly change the way we work. And, I mean, almost described it at the beginning of, you know, we're coming to the end of that, but it's not really the end. Uh, and that's the problem, it's the uncertainty word again. So, you know, for that, that would be the key thing for me in this period. People have been wonderful, but we're, you know, it's been a new way of working. We've had to adapt our physical practices, our operational practices, and 
you know, coming in and not quite knowing something that's been familiar for you for a, you know, a long period of time, that's unnerving. Mm. I think one of the things I've really thought about with COVID, and I've seen this with offices that we support, is that there isn't, a, there isn't an end point. So, so normally when you're looking at operations, you would be looking at a period of time to cover and what you've got to do in order to get past that period of time. Whereas with this, because it's ongoing and we don't know what that means and what that looks like, there isn't an end point. It's just open-ended. So you, you're constantly having to adapt and change all the time in order to be able to manage that or whatever that might bring, I guess. I mean, absolutely. But I mean, on the subject of dealing with change, people want to know what that change is going to be and what the time scale is going to be. And this is one of the most uncertain kind of issues of this period, because we can't provide that to our staff. We can't provide that to ourselves. Uh, I mean, two key things that spring to my mind at the moment, right at the beginning from the police officer side of things, we jumped into what we call a battle rhythm, but a very formal operational way of doing something. Now in the police service, that's great, we love a crisis, but we're really good at dealing with something like that. However, uh, and the people that have really stepped up, it's been the police staff members, uh, and I'm really proud to be able to say this, because it's the first time I've seen in my career, and I mean, Nancy will probably have a view on this, uh, you know, it would be quite interesting for the discussion, but in some aspects, the police staff members have had to step within the operational arena mm. and this operational battle rhythm from daily meetings, doing things outside normal terms of working, normal hours of working, but it's for a sustained period. Uh, it was really difficult at the beginning because it was new to a lot of people uh, and you know having to find new ways to work. Uh, so the, kind of that adds to the whole kind of rich mix of the picture, I guess. Mm. And I suppose that bringing the officers and the staff together into that battle rhythm, it, it, because it is unusual, it's created maybe more um, connection between them maybe at times, would you say? Or has there been, because I suppose the staff side of it, there's, there's always very defined roles, isn't there, in terms of what warranted officers can do and what staff can do. Do you think there's been a, a sense of bringing those people together? Uh, in managing COVID-19 and the fallout from it. It's one of the best examples I've ever seen of one team. Mm. I'll leave it at that. It, mm. it, it's been a good experience. There's been ups and downs within it. And, you know, individuals, you know, some people have really found points of stress. Uh, and once then we get, you know, the, you know, the familiar way of working, which we've adapted over the past three, three to four months, then things smooth down. Mm. However, once again, it's that uncertainty going into the future. We could be looking at outbreak management, and it's highly likely looking to how things are developing around the country. So that uncertainty will continue, but it has brought people together. And what it's also done is engendered an understanding from police officers to police staff roles and vice versa, because one of the real key points the thing that was really important to us as a you know, as an organisation through the whole COVID uh, kind of situation was looking after our police officers and police staff mm. and from a real operational kind of perspective because we wanted our staff to be healthy, we wanted to protect them because if we didn't and we lost great swathes of our staff we wouldn't be able to undertake our key operational role, our very purpose for being there. So it, that focus on HR, the processes, the welfare and the support, uh, if anything, it's the police officers that have learned more. Mm. Mm. 
I think I can really relate to that idea about the, the uh, battle rhythm. I know some of the officers that we help with therapy just stopped straight away. Like, no, we've got a job to do and we've got to go off and do that. And the staff were the same that we support. Um, a real change in focus and needing to get, you know, almost like get, we've got to get heads down, we've got, we've got work to do. Um, but we also saw that obviously there's a lot of people um, having difficulties at home because everyone at home is affected by this as well. It wasn't just that, you know, there's a particular part of society, everyone was going through the same thing. So I'll just come to you, Nancy, about that in terms of managing the people side of things. Mm-hmm. How, how have you felt that's gone over the last few months? So I think there was both a professional response and a personal response. You're absolutely right. So professionally, everybody was doing a day job anyway. And then you had a layer of additionality that went on top of that mm-hmm. and that was responding to COVID. So whether it, you were working in the estates department and we had to work out how, it, how it's safe, putting one-way systems, entry, egress routes and things, whether it's how I kept my garages running 24-7. Mm-hmm. So we altered the shift patterns so that my cars that get damaged, we can get them back out on the roads, etc. And just like everybody else, we were waiting for government policy at five o'clock on a press announcement and having to respond to it overnight and put it into place, whilst making sure IT got rolled out and everybody got a laptop at home. So if you like, professionally, there was a layer of additionality put on top straight away. Then you're absolutely right, there's a personal effect. So you've got people who have got caring responsibilities. There are people who are, you know, fearful because they've got underlying medical conditions. What does shielding mean? Uh, then there's this question about how do you work from home, particularly if you've got little kids running in and out of the room. Yeah, schools are closed. You know, how are you doing that as well as homeschooling, doing my day job, being on, on a Skype or a Microsoft Teams, um, doing some bit of caring, making sure everybody gets fed at 12 o'clock. Um, and I think the fatigue of that... Because home wasn't normal, work wasn't normal, and my weekend wasn't normal. Mm. And after a certain point, the novelty of that wore off, mm. really clearly. Mm. But there was no escape from it, mm. because it's, it was there, and it still is here. And I think at the moment, we've almost got a false sense of security. Just because governments sort of released some lockdown measures, people think it's gone away. Mm. It hasn't. We slowed it down because we all stayed at home, mm. uh, and we've got more coming. And I think... The culture of the police were great at responding. There's very few, probably other than the military, who can respond as quickly and as disciplined as we can. What we struggle with is maintaining it 365 days a year for several years, Mm. potentially. Mm. And this, for me, is what is the slow burn. Mm. And I think it's that fatigue on a personal level, whether it's your professional life, your work life, your home life, or what I want to do on a weekend. You know, I want to get on a plane and go to a sunny climate, and I can't now. No. And it's all those things that I think lead to frustration and how you have to look after yourself to stay well in a really unnatural environment. Definitely. I think a lot of, we work in a lot of different sectors, and one of the things that we found with a lot of people working from home is that you don't get that differentiation between your, your compartment of work and your compartment at home if you like and you don't get that time to you know almost debrief and and kind of change your mindset uh, in your car journey from one place to another well, or... some, someone said to me the other day it's not working from home it's living at work yeah yeah i think that's a really good way of putting it and, and it is very different when you don't have that commute to go home the chat when you how was your day well you know your day was because you were sat in the living room while i was sat in the studio whichever way around you know i was talking to a colleague who is working out of london very compressed space it's fine for me in a house where i've got spare rooms and things like that but if your bedroom is your only space where you've got private time you've got a communal kitchen etc it's very different and it's a layer that we've never had of stress around us personally no and you never need to be aware of it either because as an employer if you like that you know you're providing the working environment aren't you on a general day-to-day basis yeah. but when it's actually people working from home we've had people who've been in apartments and actually set up a corner of their apartment with 
planting and a, and a chair so they can actually go and sit somewhere different mm. to have a break or have a coffee because actually they're just in that environment all the time and as you say you, you're going in and out of different roles constantly as well so you might be parenting for five minutes there and then you're straight into a zoom meeting or a teams meeting and then you're back out again and mm. it's that fatigue i think that comes with the whole management of everything and it's almost like we, we pretended that you didn't have a personal life Whereas actually, if you're on a Skype call and a two-year-old comes in and screams, mummy, daddy, whatever, I need the potty, you know, that's real life, isn't it? Mm. And for me, that's just about, okay, everybody, we only ever saw you as a work person, mm. but now actually you're a family person as well. But equally, we talk about everybody who's got somebody around them. There's also acute loneliness for me. So if you live alone, how does that do it? If you've been working from home, you've had no social contact. So I think you've got both ends of the scales to deal with here. You might have someone who feels too isolated and someone who's absolutely screaming, I could do with just five minutes by myself. Do yeah. I need to go and sit in the car to achieve that? Yeah, and that adrenaline that kicks in at the beginning, you know, to get that kind of battle rhythm going and, and to be available and to be able to function at that level, once that adrenaline starts to burn out and we start to see people feeling really fatigued and exhausted, that starts to impact, doesn't it, on what you can offer as a force. If I just come to you for a minute, Paul, how do you think that long term that's going to impact on the force and what they can, how you manage that really in terms of the offer and the service that you give the public? Nancy raises a really good point, uh, you know, in respect of you know how we've adapted things. I mean, she used the uh, the example of the kind of the meeting, so kind of Microsoft Team, be it on Skype. Albeit, I have to say, I have found it quite amusing looking at a number of key partners' houses now, and it's a bit like Lloyd Grossman and through the keyhole. Yeah. So, you know, there's some aspects that have been quite enjoyable. But reflecting on that, we're humans, and as people, we generally, not everybody, but in, gem in general terms, we gravitate towards other people, we like conversation. At first, the Skype meetings, the you know, meetings on Microsoft Teams, life became really efficient uh, and kind of like looking back all the things in some ways we wanted kind of rollouts in terms of certain terms of IT and they seem to take an age the great thing and one of the great things in COVID it happened really really quickly mm. because it had to happen so that's a benefit however what I have noticed as time's gone on there's and I feel it occasionally as well we are missing that social interaction and the meetings some of them become very functional uh, they do become very efficient and uh, so there's a danger there you end up doing back-to-back -back skype meetings yeah. all day with, with no time to think but and, yeah and i think when you when you're actually checking in with people it has to almost be a conscious effort to do it on those platforms you know it has to be a thought of i need to just see if that person's okay or yeah. especially if you're seeing a number of people on the screen as well how you read what's going on for for those different people if you've got them on that or if you're just using it without the video you lose a lot of communication don't you in those meetings you, you do and as an organization our challenge because i mean here we're talking meetings that you know would happen at executive level senior management and partnership yeah. level uh, that's easier in some ways to understand and understand the effect on people in your business because you're dealing with a smaller amount of people but just looking into kind of you know the operational units that sit, sit under myself for instance you know so take Hull take North Bank that's, that's a thousand people and a thousand people don't dial in and Skype no. I mean in terms of agile working working from home we've got over 500 people now who are working socially distanced and that's become quite nuanced, very effective. And, you know, in terms of, you know, the childcare arrangements, that's flexibility. That's been really good. 
but the real challenge in the conversations we're having now is with our managers and supervisors do you really know that person's okay mm. before they're getting that interaction that contact every day and when you look into the whites of someone's eyes you know that non-verbal communication you, you can feel it if, if someone's not quite right mm. that and I think the real danger for me is that's that could be lost uh, and if this goes on to a real long-term way of doing business, I think we're going to really have to kind of think maybe about a you know, blended mix of rotating people into the workplace out, and it's our responsibility to them as people. Yeah, it's keeping that going long-term, isn't it? What does that look like, and how, how can you adapt and keep adapting to keep those people engaged, I guess, and connected as well? You were talking about isolation, Nancy, and people being separate, and I think when people have been shielding as well, you know, there's that real sense of being defined by an illness that maybe doesn't get in the way on a general basis for some people. But it's how do you keep them connected to the organisation as well, isn't it? And actually what, what you're doing here and that they're valued, I suppose. Yeah, so we have done um, some messages out to people where we've thanked them, that we've responded, and people have genuinely been touched by that, I think, that we do care about them, we are grateful for all the additionality, all the discomfort they've had to go through to keep our service running as well as in their private lives but I think it's those I was laughing while Paul was talking because you know if you don't put the cameras on and you're talking to a black screen with a load of dots on it it is soul destroying quite mm-hmm. often I go can I just ask proof of life is anybody out there or, or am I just talking to myself um they don't always respond either but um so sometimes I've put the cameras on and I know with my leadership team occasionally we'll have lunch together and I know it sounds daft and we're probably both all slopping into a camera while we're eating whatever sandwich we're doing but it's actually that communal thing of just yeah we're still on camera but we're sat chatting over something to eat mm. uh, and I have a, a friend who is shielding so I FaceTime her quite regularly and we cook dinner together mm. obviously we're about 80 miles apart and to the point that I forget that she's on camera so when she puts the kettle on I goes oh go on yeah can I have a tea as well <laughs> and feel like you know I'm gonna have to drive to Leeds for that cup of tea if I really want one yeah. um, but it was so strange because I, I did drop some shopping off for her and obviously I had to do it socially distanced etc but I remember thinking god it's really weird to see you in 3D because mm. I just got used to this flat image on the screen and then to actually see her as a human being I just remember noticing at the time thinking Oh, you look different in 3D. And I just thought, what a bizarre thing to think. It's weird, isn't it? Because I went into a meeting. I'd been on doing Zooms and Teams, you know, for weeks and weeks and uh, went into a meeting with four other people. And I had a time, I was waiting, it was a time delay. I was waiting yeah. for, for the video conferencing to catch up so that they could answer. And we were, you know, we were sat in the same room and I thought, God, I've become conditioned in about, you know, three months to wait for the response and I can't talk over them because I won't be able to hear them speaking back to me because mm. of it's, it's strange isn't it how we, we adapt to it but actually it also gets in the way of the communication aspect and it's a bit overwhelming when you do see people but I think that. it's also how we stay well out of work mm. because quite a lot of people will socialise to stay well they go out for something to eat they might meet at gym class etc suddenly you become very isolated in what are your traditional wellness if you like mechanisms whether that's going to a church etc etc so I think on a whole number of levels yeah, as interrupted how you live your life and how you stay well mm. throughout that time period. Mm. Mm, definitely. You're listening to the Keeping the Peace podcast, brought to you in partnership with Fortis Therapy and Training, Oscar Kilo and Humberside Police. How do you feel um, as, as the kind of future comes and we're kind of adapting to what's going on, that you will be able to manage that or support and lead people whilst those changes are ongoing? 
I think we've got to, we, we're an organisation who will support and obviously some people will engage with us and some won't. I think at the principle of this, people have got to take some level of self-responsibility for their own wellness mm -hmm. and that's easy to say, difficult to do. Mm. And also find a way to say when they're not okay and they do need our help because mm. some people won't do it under those circumstances and none of us know what the long-term effect is of going to live in a pandemic for some time. Mm. Um, so I think the usual things that you do to stay well that you may have adapted, so instead of going to the gym you might go out for a run or a walk or etc. If you can't go to your church and pray you might be doing it just by yourself etc. You will find ways that you have adapted. It's about being consistent because mm. I know if I don't eat right and I don't sleep enough I then tend to get ill. Mm. And it's not a very complicated formula. So that takes care of me physically. Mm. How do I then do the stuff that's mentally and emotionally to stay well with mm. that? And for those who have faith, on top of that, you may have spirituality as well. But for me, it's ensuring that what we used to offer is still there. But I think what will be different for us as managers and leaders is noticing when people don't look okay. Mm and aren't able to say that they're not okay, but we notice something's different. Mm. And you say it's really hard to do that on Microsoft Teams. Mm, absolutely. Do you think that longer term, that you know, kind of the training that those, those officers and staff you've got in leadership and management roles is gonna to need to adapt in order to be able to take that into account? I do, because I think we will become less human. Mm. I think we will become more transactional because of the way we communicate and all of that non-verbal stuff that you can pick up in a room if you've just seen it in 2D, it's really hard to read it, mm. particularly if someone's not got the camera on. Mm, uh, and that's where it's knowing that voice, that response, seeing somebody's email and thinking, oh, that's a bit sharper than normal. What's up there? I need to put a call in. Um, but, you know, I'm encouraging people, if you are going to work, etc., checking in with people on the phone, please don't keep sending me another email. I've got loads of those. Yeah. You know, so how is it that you ultimately show people you care and really mean that you do care because mm. people know when it's just a ticky box that this is me doing my bit for management responsibility they need to feel that you care yeah it's that it's that human to human bit isn't it that's mm. really important Paul I think I think for me there's something about officers asking for help and staff asking for help you know um notoriously I guess historically that wouldn't be something that would happen um because there would be a peer-to-peer support and conversation there would be a debrief maybe um so how do you think you can encourage people to step forward and ask for help you know as a, as a team you know as a, as a leadership team i think culturally the police service is an area we've always been it's an area we've been kind of you know in the in the distant past fairly pants at to be quite honest <laughs> it was because we're roughy tufty and we're not good at standing up to say i need help uh, the last decade we've seen huge changes there which is really good it comes down to I mean two things certainly in this kind of you know COVID world we're in it's the adapted way of working uh, I mean the challenges and kind of where I'm putting my mind to at the moment with you know kind of I've got three big commands with I mean literally kind of hundreds of people into the thousands it, it's it's that personal contact and Nancy's so right when she said everything will become transactional kind of you know this kind of the Skype meetings they are very business-like it's very efficient but it's business-like so how if they're not if people are going to work remote it's now in terms of working with our managers to say you know we're expecting you to phone up there's nothing wrong with phoning up and having a natter with someone mm. no agenda mm. just and a, you know a diary call a spontaneous call how are you and kind of you know speaking in general terms looking forwards 
you know, in some ways, and you know, we touched on childcare earlier, but that's such a massive area for, I mean, for, for all of us. And I mean, looking into my family, kind of, I, I live away during the week. So, you know, my wife picks up that responsibility and she works on top of that. Uh, so I get it. Uh, children will go back to school and that appears to be the government's in- intention but that coupled then with potential outbreak management that's going to give us kind of more challenges mm. and the other element and something we probably haven't talked about but I saw it and it was palpable right at the beginning of COVID but it still exists is fear mm. people are scared of this disease uh, and it's you know where some people where you think they're being resistant they're not they're genuinely scared and the trick for us and the trick in the conversations and as an organization is to recognize that fear yes we have got a really important role to do a duty a job whatever you want to call it however you've got to recognize people's fear because people are scared and when people are scared it's recognizing that they behave differently definitely and i think there's um, is having that compassion to recognize that people are scared right at the beginning of the pandemic i wrote an article about uh, called a pandemic within a pandemic and it was about actually covid19 wasn't wasn't having a massive impact at that point it was the fear of covid19 that was having the impact and we could see people starting to go into that fight and flight response and um and it's been it's been a long time that people have been in that now and if there is another you know lockdown or there's a we have to manage this over the next few months and years it's that background fear isn't it that's that's there all the time and it's just interesting what you were saying there about as a as a leadership team and as managers and leaders within the organization recognizing what people need and having that context of i suppose some compassion that actually there is this fear element to it but there's also that need for people to step up and step forward themselves because you's only you can only meet people halfway can't you well, I think it's really interesting because as globally, it's very rare that human beings feel threatened unless you're in a war zone. Completely. So most of us in the first world, if you like, it, we've never really experienced living with fear. There might have been the odd moment when you were frightened about something, but to have something that made you think about your own mortality doesn't normally happen until later in life or as a result of a serious illness. So I think for me, there was a recognition that we were under threat. Whereas, that you know, centuries ago there have been woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers <laughs> trying to eat us and things like that. So we have evolved, yeah. but we haven't been threatened recently. Now, mm. obviously, there's a generation that went through the wars, etc., and you've had people, military personnel, but, but globally, yeah. I think this is the first time that people have felt fear. And also, I think it's interesting how adults try to explain it to younger people. Mm. Because yeah. um, I found for once my nephews came to ask me, which they don't normally ask Auntie Nancy much because they're in that kind of age group where they're young adults, but both of them came to me about how long did I think it would last, what did I think would be the impact. And so even for them, I saw them recognising that something was different. And also looking to you for some certainty, mm. like what am I dealing with here? Yeah. I think the other part of it is that we've been we've been faced with our own mortality. We've also been faced with our children's and our parents and our you know friendship group and it's 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 creating vulnerability which we can generally ignore that like you say until we get to maybe a certain life stage or we're given a diagnosis of something or mm-hmm. we have to really think about it but generally we can be avoidant of those things happening to us can't we and normally you think something threatened is this dark figure in an alleyway not someone who's coughing over you in the supermarket while mm-hmm. you're looking for some bread mm-hmm. uh, and also your friends suddenly it was either your friends or any potential germ carrier yeah uh, and I think it was quite a lot for us to psychologically process. The way I found to do it is what could I do in my life to reduce the risk? So I would go to shops early in the morning 
when there were very few people in there, get mm. what I needed. If it wasn't there, it wasn't there. I was cooking something else for dinner. Mm. Um, but it was just about how could I do risk reduction? You know, I did sit there because I live alone. And I think, right, if I get sick, who's going to look after me then? Who's going to walk the dogs, etc., etc.? And I found myself doing that. Okay, so how do I de-risk all of this? Yeah, how do I, how do I minimise it? I know some of the people we were working with who were single parent families, um, real fear about if if something happens to me, where are my children going to go? Yeah. Um, and those are, you know, those are things that might be in the back of your mind occasionally yep. in general living, but actually this has been acutely put right in the front of your brain. Um, and trying to process that and look for ways of being able to manage it and who can help me. But those people who can help me also represent risk. So yep. we're kind of caught up in this web. Yeah. really and there was also that you know I wanted to see my mother who's elderly and she had a fall during this but I knew I couldn't go to her because I was potentially bringing something to her mm. particularly as I'm going into a police station mm. five days a week and so I think there's those kind of things I mean I have no idea how people process the bereavement during this time you know when you potentially couldn't go to the funeral you couldn't go and see someone till right at the end of lifetime care so I think there's been some really unusual things that probably we haven't seen people yet process that will come to us probably next year. I agree with you. I think there's going to be ripple effects of this and I think there's going to be um, a trauma reaction to some of it as well for people, for some people, not everybody, mm-hmm. but there is a sense of unfinished business and that, you know, ways that we would normally process loss or trauma or fear, we have not been able to do it in that way. I think there'll be some anger as well yeah. because we always want something to blame or somebody to blame yeah. and later on when you haven't been able to go to that funeral, you haven't been able to grieve properly, people will look back and say there were sense you know people died this could have been prevented we could have done things differently and sooner etc i think there will be anger but you know it is part of the grieving process but i think we may loop that a couple of times yeah and and people get stuck in that sometimes as well because there is so much that they can't change and can't do anything about so kind of going back into that is quite a natural thing to do it's when you've got lots of people going back into that at the same time that's when it starts to become difficult as a society yeah because fear is contagious isn't it and once you get that fear you can feel it going through a building or through a team or whatever it is Mm. and it's how you manage with that and there's a difference intellectually Mm. than emotionally Mm. and don't confuse the two things now and I think over the last few months we've seen that people who have had uh, difficulties in their lives maybe previously to this it's triggered emotions that maybe hadn't been around for a long time or maybe even ever uh, you know it's almost like that compounding of emotions and experiences so it's, it's just such a it, it's such a muddle I suppose I, won't, I was going to say mess but I don't think it I don't think it is messy I think we can figure our ways through it but rather than doing it as a kind of carte blanche one size fits all it's just not going to be possible over a period of time is it that and it, people will be coming to to us and to you with different experiences and responses for a long time to come I mean, the hard bit here in dealing with the fear aspect because we're talking about our own staff here, but we're, in terms of our society, we are the protectors. Mm. Uh, we are one of the only compellable organisations within, you know, within government. And so apart from us in the military, uh, and we, you know, we have to go out there, we have to do our duty mm. and to keep people safe. And the public are genuinely scared. What I found really interesting, so right at the, you know, the beginning, we looked at our core responsibilities and it was watching different aspects of the business almost go through the fear in waves because there were some people that had to go out there, those responding to emergency calls, for instance, regardless. And then as the new normality started to land upon us and kind of business was adapted, kind of as the next group were venturing back out into into that kind of society, we were almost 
going through that same process, which was good because we got to learn the lessons mm. over each one, uh, and it, it was it was a good dialogue. But that one key message that still binds us all together, you know, that point I said, you know, we're, we're being one team here. We have to go out there, and ultimately we have to do our job because mm. our job is to keep people safe, uh, and and that's that's the difficult kind of you know balancing line because there's some things we still must do yeah absolutely and I think from what I've seen working with different um, officers and staff is that there's also those feelings of being almost that those ones who've been out there doing that almost like we've been sacrificed while people work from home you know and there's that you can get that split can't you as well um not for everybody but there's that sense of I've got to carry on doing this and you're at home and what does that mean and I think um, as you said as, as those waves have changed and other people have been going out then that starts to dissipate because there's more people who are operationally out there if you like. It is and there's dangers in that in, in itself uh, so you know initially you know there was palpable fear with our staff uh, it, it subsided it's gone away and as senior managers we're constantly having to reinforce the message around use you know correct use of the PPE wearing of the masks what situations you, you kind of you know you, you would use them because what we're finding is staff are accepting more amounts of risk and it's hey you don't have to do that mm. you shouldn't have to do that because it's a bigger strategic importance that we keep you well and we keep you safe in order that you know we, we can continue to you know to protect people yeah. Uh, and as we go into the new normality if something's happening over in Preston if it's happening over in Bradford it's not necessarily touching the cops and the staff in Grimsby in Scunthorpe up in Bridlington Hull uh, but it it could come to a police station near you soon it's it's that kind of you know unknown and when it comes second time it'll happen suddenly as well Mm, yeah Uh, I mean Nancy touched on the government advice uh, that's probably been the most difficult, you know, one of the most difficult things for all of this. When it arrives and when the direction comes, I mean, people think we've been briefed in advance. Uh, <laughs> in a lot of those cases, sorry, that's just not the case. No. Uh, we were, it's, it's like playing catch up. And for me, I found that really uncomfortable. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about managing change during the COVID time and the COVID process. What lessons do you think you've learned that you can take forward in managing change generally uh, from that that period of time? You know, what's important? There's two key things for me that are are really important dealing with change in general. But, you know, lessons from COVID because it's been a reoccurring theme. Number one is communicate, communicate, communicate. Mm. And number two is it's the why. It's the explanation. there's a difficult balancing act sometimes because when you have to get information out there it can be done in you know quite a transactional way you say we are doing this there is going to be this element of change here is the timeline this is what you can expect the lessons from covid have been really around the personal touch because we've had to really focus on that people side but that's absolutely rammed it home for me as an individual so looking into the future and you know looking at policing in general where you know it's a constant changing beast you know corporate comms absolutely imperative people like and you know we talked to that fear earlier people like to know what's going to happen when it's going to happen but the question is why uh, the big lesson and from my perspective you know what I try to do is is how do you engage on that personal level because it's great getting the why from our perspective but the individuals 
officers, our staff members want to know they have been listened to. Uh, past months we've got better and better and better at that you know and we're talking today you know very much in in the context of covid but for me it's taking that out taking some of the forums out the different ways now of communicating looking at kind of you know be it zoom be it microsoft teams uh be it, you know we've held now a number of virtual meetings i would look to take those as examples and put them into normal change process because what i'm finding is there's really effective ways mm. we can touch whole team members mm. uh where we wouldn't have done so before and a great example about that is but you know i wanted to say thank you to the staff uh, it was i'm just trying to think it's about six or seven weeks ago now uh, but by, you know, kind of use of setting up Skype meetings, I managed to dial into every, virtually every operational briefing within the response teams. And that's no mean feat. Mm. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of officers across the force. I was personally surprised about how successful that was. And when I mean successful, the fact that it worked, but it was that level of conversation. I didn't think you could have an effective conversation. I was wrong. Mm. Yeah. I guess for me, three things. I always simplify things down to a cooking recipe because I think when you've got change, you just want to know what's going to happen, in what order and when. Mm. So intellectually, give me the cooking recipe of what's going to happen. I might not like it, but at least I understand it and that gets rid of some of the uncertainty in it. I think for me, the second bit would be allow me to have an emotional response because just because intellectually you've said, this is why we need to do something, I might get it, but I might not like it. Mm. Two separate things. So where's the space to have an emotional reaction to it? And then the third one is about understanding what does it mean from the individual? Because you can talk about this global thing for policing and all this big change. Ultimately, people want to know, how does it affect me? What do I need to do? What's the impact on me? So I think you need to be able to take the big thing right down to the individual level mm -hmm. and say, this is what it means for you and this is what you're going to have to do and change. Yeah, and, and actually people can accept it more readily because they understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. I think that also that point you were saying there, Paul, about being heard, you know, a lot of the time um, for people in an organisation as large as this with the hierarchical structure that you've got, that two-way communication is something that um, maybe over the years hasn't happened as well as it could so being being listened to but also being able to use the technology and almost you've been fast forwarded with that haven't you that's something that maybe would have taken years to put into place but now it's actually happening more I think we've got to try to change the style here so we have all the usual organisational mechanisms for mm. people to engage whether people do or not you know people are the judge of that but I think we all try and be really approachable our chief goes out and does a load of discussions with everybody so we hear and get told what's not working mm. the, the frustration I sometimes experience is if it ain't working then tell me because I, I can do something about it mm. then I can't do if I don't know mm. you know and it's a big organization we've got 60 police stations can't be everywhere but if people tell us we can do something about it mm. uh, and that's where I think people have to realize that you do care enough that you will do something about it mm. And that you want that two-way communication as well. Yeah. You might not always like what you get told. No. <laughs> but that's what comes <laughs> with a paycheck. Yeah, then go put it right for somebody. Because mm. actually, if someone's just picked up body parts at 2am mm. and actually got a problem with an IT system, I want to solve it for them, mm. particularly when they've just gone and done that. Yeah, and it's those small things, isn't it? Those environmental things, if you like, that, that just tip the balance sometimes for people Yeah, when they're dealing with issues like that. 
Okay, thanks both of you very much for today. It's been really interesting talking to you um, and hope that the people listening have also found that there's some been useful tips in there and ideas about what people can do to look after themselves and also the challenges that organisations face and will continue to face as well over the next few months and probably years as well. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Keeping the Peace podcast. It's available wherever you listen to your podcasts and if you subscribe, you'll be notified of the next episode as soon as it's available. We'd love to hear your feedback and ideas for future podcasts, so please do comment or get in touch on our social media platforms for either Fortis Therapy and Training or Oscar Kilo.